Hello and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is David Price. I'm Vice Provost for Research here at UCL. And I'm delighted to welcome you today to the UCL Lunch Hour Lecture, which will be given by Professor Becky Francis. Becky is the director of the UCL um, Institute of Education and is very well known for her work on gender and achievement. Before coming to UCL, Becky uh, spent a time at another institution not far away <laughs> in King's. She was professor of education and social justice. She saw the light and then came to UCL. Um, she, she's also been an advisor uh, to the Parliamentary Education Select Committee and was a member of the REF 2014 uh, sub-panel for education. While at UCL, uh, Becky's research has continued to blossom and she directed a major research uh, project funded by the Education Endowment Foundation on best practice in grouping students, which was a mixed method study involving 140 English secondary schools. She obviously did this so well that uh, recently it's been announced that Becky is to become the Chief Executive Officer of the Education Endowment <laughs> Foundation. So it's a very good, clever, clever trick. Um, so this is a bittersweet moment, really, because I'm introducing Becky as a wonderful colleague, uh, but also recognising that she will be moving on next year. Becky is and has been uh, an outstanding director of the UCL Institute of Education, and I will be very sorry to leave her, lose her as, as a colleague. As a director of the institution, Becky shows wonderful leadership and has helped complete the merger between UCL and the Institute of Education. And we have now a wonderful relationship between what were two different parts of uh, the London educational framework. But Becky is still with us. And indeed, once a member of UCL, always a member of UCL one way or another. So it is with huge pleasure that I introduce to you today the truly outstanding Professor Becky Francis, who's going to give today's lunch hour lecture on attainment grouping and social inequality. Becky. Thanks, David. Thank you ever so much, David. And colleagues, I don't know if you all are all aware that we are second in the world, in, in, in the UK, only to Oxford in relation to the size and scale of our research programme and the fantastic things we're doing. And that is, of course, under David's leadership. Um, so really proud to be part of UCL. Sorry to be leaving, but as David says, I'll retain a foot in the door and an association. Now, I need to uh, know my audience, so pop your hands up if you are part of the non-higher education education sector. Only a few, so I'm taking it most people here are from higher education, so I'll probably have to do a little bit of language finessing here, um, but that's absolutely fine. Now, just all of you cast your minds back to when you first started, let's say, secondary school, if you're a UK you were a UK student, or high school, if you come from uh, the United States or elsewhere. And let's try and remember the sort of senses that you felt on your arrival at that big school, 
the buzz of noise, everybody knowing what they were supposed to be doing apart from you, the feelings of being really small in a big place when you were one of the big kids at your primary school, and so on. Now try to think if when you arrived at that school, you'd been divvied up, taken away from your friends, and put with a group of students that over perhaps the course of that first day, you gradually learn by intel and a, a, a sense of place, but also intel from other students, that you were in the stupid group, the low set or stream. And what that would have meant for your self-esteem and your way of thinking about yourself in relation to your new journey at this exciting new school. Many of you, you know, here as students probably at UCL, almost by necessity won't have had that experience. You were probably pushed off if you were uh, divided into attainment groups into the top set and stream. So you would have had your identity as a clever clogs affirmed and you'd be feeling positive or maybe you'd just take that for granted. But I just want to set the scene here. What's really interesting, and as we say in our new book, and I'm looking, when I say us, I'm looking at my colleague Becky Taylor here in the audience, who's part of my research team. Actually, that sort of sense of yourself as a new student at secondary school being grouped at that stage is actually relatively rare in the English education system these days because that divvying up in terms of the notion of attainment or even ability often starts much earlier uh, even in primary and even in the earliest years in our system. Now, what's very interesting about the English sector um, before I carry on, is that we're very good and inclusive about some things. And it's really important to remember that. Um, of the OECD countries, we still remain relatively unusual. We're, about, we're among about a quarter of countries in the OECD that retain comprehensive education as the mainstay, not exclusively, some of you will know about our few grammar schools and so forth, but mainly, if you're educated in the English system, you'll be in a comprehensive school uh, right through to 16 and you'll be doing basically the same sorts of subjects as all the other students in your school. And this is quite still unusual globally. It's shown to be very inclusive, and evidence shows that in terms of uh, attainment overall, it's not just uh, better for social justice, but it's also better for attainment for students. As you can imagine, it means that we're in a cluster with uh, Scandinavian countries and some others uh, characterized for comprehensive education. But we are very special and different from those other school uh, 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 countries in the extent to which we segregate pupils within school. And my colleague, John Jerram, um, published some research looking at this uh, just a couple of weeks ago uh, that reinforced the message, which, you know, again, we've published in our book, again, analyzing the OECD data to show that uh, we really are very distinctive in the extent to which we set and stream our pupils. Now, I'm going to do just a little bit of a language dive here. So, when I'm talking about streaming, 
I'm talking about dividing uh, young people into groups where they carry on together with that same group through all or, or most of curriculum lessons. So, you know, you're in a particular group, you might be top group, middle group, or bottom group for French, science, English, and so on. Um, setting is a more nuanced practice where, for example, you are um, segregated by attainment or prior attainment in different subjects. So you might be in the top group for maths, but in the middle group for English. So it's a more nuanced and subject-specific uh, approach. What's interesting um, in English schools is the prevalence of both systems. Setting is, I'm glad to say, much more common than streaming. But as we found in our study, actually uh, many schools do either both or a combination of the two. Um, many of you uh, coming from your different disciplines will already be questioning when I'm saying attainment, when I'm saying ability. Often, um, these uh, approaches are overtly referred to as ability grouping, and in schools, even overtly referred to as ability groups. Of course, we don't subscribe to a fixed notion of ability, uh, whereby young people, either that their attainment reflects some innate uh, IQ level uh, of attainment, or that that attainment level is fixed and uh, not malleable. So we try to talk about attainment grouping, which is a much better proxy for what it is that schools are actually trying to do. They're looking at kids' existing attainment levels, and then they're dividing them accordingly. What I need to convince you of in my session is that this is an issue for social justice and indeed an issue for social injustice. And I'll talk you through that in a second. This is basically how I want to structure the next half an hour. Um, I've given you already a little bit of background and terminology. I'll give you um, a background to my research in a second, summarize key findings, and then, most importantly, discuss the implications with you. So in terms of the research background, this is really um, the summary, a distillation of the very long-standing and widespread uh, research in this area. And this research is international. It's not just uh, in Britain. There's particularly long-standing research on this topic in the United States. So, as you can see, educational attainment and socioeconomic background are closely correlated. We know this. Kids come into the education system already with very different uh, attainment levels in terms of their language knowledge, oracy, uh, numeracy, and so forth. So they start at different points in the journey. What's really worrying is that as kids go through the school system, rather than that inequality being compensated, the gaps actually get bigger. And that's particularly the case at secondary school. We also know that once kids are divided by attainment, typically in secondary school, although, as I've said, increasingly uh, in particularly the later years of primary as well, um, disadvantaged kids 
and some kids from particular, particular BAME backgrounds as well, uh, typically uh, black heritage students, also boys disproportionately represented in the low attainment groups. And of course, you might say, particularly in relation to um, socially disadvantaged kids, well, of course, you know, that's, it's not rocket science, is it? Of course, you know, if they come into the education system disadvantaged, uh, you know, they'll be lower attaining, and then, of course, they go into the lower sets and streams. But what's really important there is that third bullet point. We know students in low sets and streams have poorer progress and attainment outcomes. And I'll show you some evidence for that in a minute. So what we talk about in our publications is a double disadvantage. You know, we have kids that are disadvantaged for various reasons at the start of their educational journey that we're then subjecting to practices which we know disadvantage them going forward. So rather than those kids being compensated, uh, quite the opposite is happening. And, I, and I'll talk a little bit about why this is so. And overall, the last bullet point shows that this long-standing literature finds no significant benefit overall for attainment grouping. Um, and I'll just put you up, um, the conclusion from some of you will be familiar with the Education Endowment Foundation Toolkit. If you've not heard of this, it's a resource uh, for schools and educationalists about what the evidence says. And this is the conclusion for their entry on attainment grouping. I'll just let you read that. My head's not in the way. So when you read that, you might be thinking, now why on earth then, if this is the summary from the long-standing uh, literature, including loads of experimental uh, RCT work and so forth that sits behind this conclusion, why on earth are we still doing it? And that is a very good question, and we have written on this in, in various places. What we argue is that for some historic, social, and political reasons, Setting and streaming have somehow been become associated with a notion of rigor in the English education system. But that, of course, has no evidence behind it. And as we'll show, uh, the, the results are very problematic. Now, this is a very, very brief summary of the uh, research methods that sit behind the uh, large-scale uh, research project that I'm going to be talking about today. Um, you can get the details, obviously, on our website and so forth. I'm not going to go into it in depth now. As David said, it involved 140 different secondary schools, so you get a sense of the scale. We were looking at both maths and English as two uh, pedagogically different but also uh, very significant uh, curriculum subject areas within the British system. Um, we were tracking young people from the beginning of year seven when they arrive in secondary school and when they're first subjected to these uh, different attainment grouping practices until the end of year eight. So there's a sort of longitudinal element to the study. And we had two different RCTs, as you can see. One large scale, um, fully statistically powered study uh, looking at best practice and setting. So we had basically a notion of a, a, an intervention around trying to strip out bad practices and ensure more equitable approaches to setting. 
versus business as usual setting. And then the other uh, pilot study was a feasibility RCT around uh, best practice in mixed attainment grouping. We weren't comparing the two, unfortunately, and Becky Taylor is among the leaders of a new project that's trying to do this in the future. Um, and then you can see the uh, project team and so forth along the bottom, and that we uh, took different approaches, including surveying the young people, um, talking to teachers, and interviewing students. So, um, what were our findings? And I apologize in advance that this is going to be a bit of a crash through our research findings, um, both more detail and also the publications that sit behind these can be found on our website. So first of all, I'll talk a little bit about misallocation of students to groups, then talk about issues about teacher quality, think about student self-confidence and attainment, and then also why schools seem to find improvement in this area very difficult. So first of all, thinking about allocation to attainment groups. And here, bear in mind, I'm talking just about sets because um, we, this, this is the area that we were focused on uh, in the main RCT. Now, it's been shown throughout the sort of uh, decades of research on this issue that there is a lot of misallocation. Uh, you know, where you, which set or stream you get put in is not just based on your prior attainment. Other factors come into play as well. And there are some studies that have shown that actually social background is a closer proxy to where you'll be put. The correlation is stronger than your prior attainment. So you can see those elements of bias uh, that come into play. We found no difference. Um, in our study, we found that a third of young people were misallocated to attainment groups based on our um, baseline measure of their key stage two results, which were, by the way, what we'd asked the um, intervention schools to use uh, in order to uh, set to different groups. Um, so that was a very interesting finding in its own right. But much more worryingly were these findings about how that misallocation worked. So some among you who are studying issues around equity um, and identity uh, may not be surprised, but I hope most of us are horrified to see, for example, that black students were two and a half more times more likely than white students to be misallocated down a set in maths. Um, likewise, Asian students are more likely to be misallocated down a set. And in maths, girls more likely to be misallocated down a set than boys. We also ran the same um, analysis for English, and it won't surprise you, I'm sure, to hear that the results were broadly the same, except an inversion for gender. So boys were more likely to be misallocated down a set than girls for English. Um, and you can see the uh, comparators for uh, white students at the bottom. So in terms of um, exemplifying how uh, disadvantage, bias, and so forth can seep into this process, um, these findings, I would say, are pretty profound. 
What was interesting is that in contrast to many prior studies in this area, um, we didn't find a strongly significant misallocation according to social background. So that did suggest that schools were trying to address that issue with integrity as, as our intervention had suggested. But nevertheless, um, you can see some of the dangers, I think, involved in this process and some of them the problematic uh, outcomes because of the next set of findings that I'm going to discuss. So in terms of teaching quality, we found some evidence of, again, a, a, a finding that um, many, many studies across the world have shown that subject expert, uh, longer standing, more expert teachers tend to be placed with higher attainment groups and the inverse or the reverse uh, being the case for the low attainment groups. So again, a pattern whereby the very kids that most need that compensatory help, that specialist expert input, actually are the least likely to get that, get that support. Um, but interestingly, while we did find you know, a significant pattern in that regard, which, by the way, was somewhat um, dissipated in the intervention group, suggesting that there is some improvement that um, schools can make if they work really hard at this. Nevertheless, the um, most profound findings in this regard were what teachers and students said about the different approaches, the different pedagogical approaches that were being taken to the different groups, rather than the sort of indicators around the, uh, usually using the phrase quality of the teacher. So we found that um, young people expect, perceived um, teachers of the high sets to be stricter and to have higher expectations than the teachers in the low sets. And what was fascinating to me was that although um, some students, of course, uh, liked having easygoing teachers um, and, and were glad not to have sort of, you know, really demanding expectations applied to them, most students in both the top and the bottom sets felt that those high expectations, the strict, demanding, rigorous um, expectations of behavior standards, actually meant that they were being cared about, that the teachers cared about them, cared about their learning, took it seriously, and therefore um, they felt more engaged, whereas the kids in the low groups felt that they were being patronized, um, that, they were, that their teachers cared less about their futures. So this notion of strictness that we might think, you know, sounds a bit sort of, um, you know, I don't know, dictatorial or, or, or negative, actually the young people felt really showed a seriousness and a value. And, and as I say, the kids in the low sets uh, felt that they weren't a uh, party to this. So these were the, um, the perceptions of teachers in high sets. And in contrast, the pedagogy for low sets was often seen in these ways, more tolerant and relaxed, but this spoon-feeding, spoon uh, nannying, 
lower expectations. Um, and kids, I, I haven't brought you quotes today, but um, you know, kids talked in a very articulate way about the consequences of these approaches, what they, what the, the, their awareness that they weren't accessing uh, subject expertise, um, high expectations, things that, as they said, they would need when they got out into the world of work, as well as for their qualifications. And when we talk about um, self-confidence, sorry, this is a sort of slightly hard slide for you to read, but basically what it's showing is the adjusted mean scores for self-confidence in maths and English in relation to set allocation at the beginning of year seven. So this is when kids had just been put into their attainment groups. And you can see the uh, sort of correlative pattern that you might expect. Um, we've got um, the darker uh, columns are, are indicating maths, the lighter ones English. So the top sets showing the higher self-confidence in their subject of, uh, their, their setted subject than the bottom sets. And you might say, well, of course, you know, if you're a higher or lower achiever in that subject, you might be expected to have uh, a higher or lower self-confidence accordingly. What's probably more interesting here you can see that the trend is slighter, but nevertheless significant, um, is that this impacted general self-confidence overall. So here again, you see the top set students having more general self-confidence in, in, in their whole approach to learning, not just the subjects in which they'd been set, suggesting that there's a knock-on um, in relation to this pattern. And when we helpfully, you know, because of the longitudinal elements of our study, were able to look at this um, at the end of uh, year eight, so two years after the young people's experience of setting, you can see uh, the very problematic uh, pattern here, whereby the margins, the, you know, the, the gap, if you like, has grown over time. With the top set pupils really advantaged, their self-confidence has grown over the period, uh, whereas the uh, bottom set students, has their, their self-confidence has reduced comparatively, certainly uh, very significantly in relation to maths, and, and to some extent in English, though interestingly, not to statistical significance in English. Um, and again, perhaps you think that this is self-evident. I suspect it's not self-evident, or we'd be questioning again and again why we're doing it. But we put this down to a strong element of self-fulfilling prophecy, as well as some of the points that we've already made about pedagogy, teacher quality, and resources, and so on. So if I can just give you um, a few of these quotes here to show the kind of labeling element that placement in sets seems to have. And I'll let you read.
So you'll see I've taken the liberty to put a few sentences in bold there. Um, but I think it's hard to read through those quotes, which, by the way, are very indicative. Not everybody felt like this. Some kids were very happy uh, with being, you know, their, their set groups, um, more commonly in the top sets, as you can imagine. Um, but some kids in the bottom sets really didn't seem to feel um, in, in these ways. But these are quite indicative quotes. You know, there was a, a broad tendency for uh, kids who are placed in bottom groups particularly to be very unhappy uh, with their set um, and indeed um, less happy with their experiences of school. And if we look at those um, quotes, particularly the bits that I've put in bold, you can start seeing the divisive uh, assumptions, the superiority that we found um, integral to a lot of the quotes uh, from kids in top sets and the, the sort of uh, entitled assumptions about uh, why they're there, uh, despite bearing in mind what I've said about both misallocation and the social trends that sort of sit behind that. So some real dangers there. But when we look at that last quote, and we think about that's a year seven child um, and what that's doing to their feelings about themselves, their school journey and so on. I think we can see why this is an issue that we need to take very seriously. And you see again and again the extension for kids as well as teachers between attainment something that is often due to you know, social factors or quality of teaching and so forth, gets conflated to ability. I'm stupid, I'm not clever, and, and so on. And just to um, you know, drive those points home a little bit, um, we found that this was really having an impact on engagement. Um, uh, and again, I will let you read. And some of you may have heard me say this before, and I, if so, I apologize for being boring. But although um, perhaps, you know, on the face of it, the third quote is, is uh, particularly tugs at the heartstrings, it's the final quote that particularly worries me. You know, this is a, a white working class boy at the beginning of his educa secondary education journey in, in uh, secondary school. Already, he is completely... Don't freak out, whatever, oh, who cares? Um, just get used to it. And that's going to be you know, the mindset, basically, uh, for his school career. It also makes a difference to attainment. Um, perhaps you won't be surprised having seen all of that uh, impact on kids' feelings about themselves, their understanding of you know, where they sit in the school hierarchy and the implication for resources. Um, in terms of attainment over two years, 
this was the statistically significant pattern um, so that we can see that in both maths and English, we have a statistically significant growing gap for attainment. Now, it's very hard to imagine any other explanation uh, apart from the point about which group you've been set in uh, to explain this um, you know, digression from the mean in terms of um, attainment outcomes. And when, again, we think about who's in the top set and who's in the bottom set in terms of those social demographics, ethnicity, social class, gender, um, we have a very strong hypothesis for some of the growing gaps that we see as students go through school. And of course, I would be trying to draw attention to the fact that this is an issue then for social justice, as well as an issue for attainment of our education system overall. We have a notoriously in the UK, a long tail of underachievement. Well, if our lowest attainers are um, being sort of further held back through the education system via the various practices associated with setting and streaming, uh, we have then a clear hypothesis for, for one of the explanations for that long tail of under, uh, underachievement. So these are some uh, summarising the uh, findings then. We've seen how attainment grouping creates further social segregation. Uh, we've seen how it impacts both um, general self-confidence, subject self-confidence, and how that, those gaps widen over time. Um, we've seen how attainment gaps widen over time and the uh, disadvantaging of those kids who, let's remember, were already disadvantaged. Um, we've talked about some of the reasons, some of the explanations for that. For example, the quality of provision, uh, the difference in expectations. And I must say, you know, again, I don't want um, to come anyone to come away uh, feeling that I'm criticising teachers specifically for this, because if we think about the logic between attainment grouping, it kind of makes sense that you would have different expectations for the kids in the low groups to those in the high groups. Otherwise, why are we segregating them at all? But you can see the consequences of that thinking uh, coming through. And what's the, the two um, points at the bottom I ought to pull out. First of all, uh, very interesting, and we've talked a lot about this in some of our other publications and in our book, about why schools find it hard to improve equity in setting. We felt there is, and we've shown through our study, that there are incremental gains that can be made. It is worth trying if your school is committed to setting to try to make things better, and, and that that does have some potential. But you can see also why that would be incremental rather than profound because of some of the bigger issues at play in terms of, for example, self-fulfilling prophecy. There's also a load of pragmatic reasons as to why schools find it difficult timetabling, just to give you one example of a frequent explanation that schools used as to why they were finding it harder to organise things better. And there are very many more explanations which Becky um, is really expert in, and if you've got questions, I'm sure she'd be happy to answer. And then, really importantly, 
uh, when, when, when I give this lecture, many people say, well, why aren't you just advocating just everybody do mixed attainment grouping? And we do want to encourage that direction. We talk about, please minimize attainment grouping as far as possible within your school context. But the problem about just saying everybody turn table, just do mixed attainment grouping, is that there is very little evidence about you know, what really works, what's really effective, and few resources to support um, schools to take on mixed attainment grouping. Now, that is already changing. Um, I'm glad to say that I think we're part of that and our resources can help with that. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's going to be a journey and we need to work with schools uh, to that end. So coming very quickly to the end now, um, I think I'm just repeating myself here. Um, I've said, you know, high integrity setting, if you can minimise setting uh, uh, as far as possible, that's certainly preferable to large-scale approaches that fix students in place, like streaming. Um, but we do think that should be minimised, and we need to support good practice in mixed attainment grouping. So we've developed some resources to do that. I've got a little pile, if anybody's interested in picking one up at the end, of our do's and don'ts of attainment grouping, which is a nice pull-out with tips and the evidence, um, and that supports better practice in setting as well as good practice in mixed attainment grouping. And we've got a series of um, pledges and interactive uh, features on our website that are designed really to get the conversation going with the profession. We think that this is a matter for the professionals, senior leaders and teachers in schools, and we want to be engaging that conversation as researchers with them. This is our book, if you want the whole finding, or the complete findings collected. Um, our main message, as I say, is that I think we see this as the start of a conversation and we want our research to be a resource in that. Thank you so much for listening. Becky, thank you so much for that wonderful lecture and uh, fascinating set of challenges for um, the profession and for all of us. We'll have an opportunity for some questions for five or ten minutes we've got two roving microphones and i have a hand at the front so it gives the more exercise running up and down the stairs hi thank you for that talk that was very very interesting um i have lots of questions i'll keep it to two just to be uh, keep keep the time um first of all I'm interested to hear about the social and kind of economic indicators you used when looking at kind of the difference in likelihood between being misallocated into a set by students, because obviously you counted for ethnicity and gender, but what things were you controlling for, particularly in terms of sort of economic background? Um, and then I'll, I'll do the second question as well, uh, which is... That's cheating. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is probably harder to answer. It's, you know, reforms to education often come across particularly sort of like rigor and tradition and things like this and why do you think it's so because there's so little evidence to support this improving attainment why do you think it's such an intuitively popular idea that people subscribe to to say oh well it's obviously right to put the good students with the good students and the bad students with the bad students i'll, I'll answer the second question first if that's all right i think intuitive is the word I think so often we don't use the evidence. Instead, we use intuition. 
And um, due to a whole raft of reasons, but some of which, uh, you know, can cast back to histories here at UCL um, and, and the sort of science of eugenics, IQ and so forth, there are very long-standing, profound assumptions riven through our education system about the naturalness of the students that can and the students that can't, that can't. The students that are best working with their heads and the students that are best working with their hands. And a slippage between those assumptions and social class, ethnicity, and so forth. And we can see this, you know, in sort of historic evidence uh, time and again. And I think that often that those intuitive you know, truths in inverted commas can be particularly hard to challenge, especially when they're mirrored in policy. Interestingly, in the new Labour years, um, both Ofsted and the uh, Department of Education, DCSF as it was then, actively encouraged setting as a sign of rigour, irrespective that the research evidence even then wasn't showing that at all. Um, so there's these sort of discursive slippage, if you like. Um, I, I think that things are gradually changing, but again, what schools were telling us frequently is parents expect this, and we can imagine which parents and who has which parents have the strongest voice. So you know, there's a whole raft of things uh, bound up there. But again, I think that that's why we need the overt conversation about this to really try to explode some of these myths. So, In, so, sorry, I was just going to say can, on that very point. You said that the only groups, I think, which would not benefit from this are the high, higher achievements. They will be setted from a socially advanced, adva advantageous grouping, and they will have parents who are the most articulate. Exactly. Spot on. Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, you did, did have a second group, but we've got two hands there. So I'll tell we, you about the, that at the do end. Do we <laughs> take, take those two questions there? And one in, oh, it's, well, we've got... One with the microphone. With so the microphone, excellent. excellent. Good. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit about EAL because I know that, the, that it's probably in the book, but um, we know that students there, we, where we don't have evidence about their prior attainment, typically go into lower sets or lower groups. Did you find that in the research and what was anything happening on that? I'm going to turn to Becky here because this is one of Becky's bugbears that we hadn't really um, factored in EAL in the design of the study. You are doing uh, going forward, aren't you, Becky? Um, so we're, we're in, in our follow-up study, student grouping study, um, we're going to be looking in a lot more detail at um, some of the context within schools and um, and, and what happens where students are in mixed attainment groups, what happens when students are in sets. Um, we didn't look specifically at EAL in best practice in grouping students. Um, there was one, one of our case study schools springs to mind, though, where they operated two bottom sets, one for their um, low achieving students and one for their EAL students. Um, so there was sort of an interesting message about segregation there where um, there was set. I think they had set one to four, um, which was sort of everybody in together. And then they had. Um, on one side of the timetable, they had their bottom set low achievers, and the other side, they had their bottom set EAL. I was studying in mixed ability class all my life. And to be honest, listening about all these problems, I would say that we had the same problems because we knew who was a clever child in class. We knew who were not achieving students. So I don't think that mixed ability classes would help children with their confidence because they understand <coughs> but for children who were high ability children 
actually by the end of the school they were completely bored completely demotivated because teachers spend so much time trying to uh, establish discipline in class help uh, <coughs> children falling behind so to be honest i have a very bright child and I'm really, really happy that he's in top set. <laughs> really, yeah. really happy that his school has this top set because I think he will fulfill his potential most in the yeah. Well, I think in a way you've just captured brilliantly uh, some of the arguments about why we need setting and, and streaming. Um, actually, um, I mean, the, the, we can... But, okay, we can counter that very easily because there are lots of uh, schools that are teaching incomplete uh, mixed attainment and being very successful at it, and that we're privileged to be working with some of those. Um, and also, many people who are from the school sector sitting here will also be aware that although in some disciplines it's almost taken as unthinkable that you do mixed attainment, maths would be uh, sort of typical across state schools, actually very often you'll have teachers saying, what? Mixed attainment? That's mad. How could you? And down the corridor, somebody's teaching history in a mixed attainment class without even thinking about it. So there's a lot that's cultural. And we, if, you know, I've obviously you know, looked at um, systems in different parts of the world, watching, watch the teaching there. Some, some, um, some of the Scandinavian countries, for example, you're not allowed to teach, you know, to segregate by attainment. Um, and th this is just sort of mixed attainment is taken as red how we do that and how we evidence good practice there is what is going to move this conversation forward because until we can provide that evidence and give teachers resources they need to be able to model that good practice and develop it uh, we, we uh, we're not going to move forward and um, so that's the conversation that that we're trying to um engage and i think just one last question okay um thanks for a really interesting presentation um I was wondering to what extent you might agree that this practice just generally reflects a very unequal, elitist, hierarchical society that we live in in the UK. Um, and the fact that the gap between richer and poorer has grown in recent years, not decreased. And we still have, of course, an elitist uh, private education system. Uh, interesting proposals coming from a recent Labour Party conference about trying to uh, regulate them more, even mm. abolish them, firstly. And secondly... Uh, so, very briefly. Uh, very briefly, very briefly. Uh, and secondly, um, I'd, I'm wondering if you could just maybe talk a bit more about, you know, your proposed solutions. So I'm, I'm assuming it is just about mixed um, grouping. And um, in and, particular... And, OK, so I think you've posed the question. Do, Becky, just what? how local government, what role local government councils yeah. might have in Well, that. I think helping the, uh, to, to develop the evidence on mixed attainment grouping, because we don't want to do harm. Obviously, we have to give teachers the resources they need, and we have to be able to evidence that it works in relation to allaying uh, uh, concerns uh, from my colleague at the back. Um, so that's what's really uh, important about the evidence moving forward. I think coming back again to the sort of why is it so pre prevalent? Why do people not question it? Your points about the sort of um, almost taken for granted nature of sort of social inequality is key there. But we have 
we, we can move things forward and minimising and thinking about what we're doing when we group and segregate students in this way would be my uh, sort of important first step in the journey. So I think we have to end there. Can I ask you to thank Becky for take, an outstanding Take lecture. some of those. <laughs>